0: Welcome to Sleep Talk Snapshots, bringing you the latest on sleep from around the world. Hi, I'm David Cunnington, a sleep physician. Welcome to this Sleep Talk Snapshot, bringing you daily updates from the Sleep 2016 meeting in Denver. You can find the Sleep Talk podcast at sleephub.com.au forward slash podcast, or in iTunes or other podcast apps, or download the Sleep Talk app from the iOS store. I went to the postgraduate course Year in Review today and there are three groups of disorders I'm going to talk about and just highlight a couple of papers from each of those groups. The first area is insomnia. In insomnia there was a really interesting paper talking about online use of CBT. In this case it was patients with depression symptoms. So the paper was out of Australia by Christensen et al and published in Lancet Psychiatry and looked at around 1,100 patients with depression symptoms and then randomised them to the online CBT program shut-eye versus uh, an inactive comparator. And they showed that the shut-eye program was able to improve depression symptoms as well as improve sleep. Now, they didn't show that it improved depression because that really wasn't the patient population, but it is promising as a way of potentially using online programs to make inroads into both insomnia and depression. The second paper in insomnia that really caught my eye was Fernandez-Madoza in Journal of Sleep Research published in 2015, looking at adults without depression, but looking then at those with the insomnia and then the incident risk of depression. And essentially it showed that if people had insomnia, their incident risk of depression was 90% higher, or an odds ratio of 1.9. But then when you looked at it more closely, it was in those with objective short sleep duration where the incident depression seemed to be independent of psychological factors such as poor coping resources. It's intriguing because it really does give us potential insights into there may be different insomnia phenotypes. Maybe people with subjective uh, poor sleep, but objective normal sleep. Um, it may be more psychologically based treatments that we need to focus on. Not the data yet to prove that, but it does actually just raise those phenotyping questions. In the area of hypersomnia, there were two papers that I found of interest. The group of papers by Valco, published in Annals on Neurology 2015 and Sleep in 2016, looking at what happens to nerve cells in the brain after traumatic brain injury. Interestingly, they showed that you can lose around 50% of histaminergic neurons uh, with damage to the arousal systems after traumatic brain injury. And with that damage to the histamine systems, it does make us wonder about a role for histamine-active drugs such as patolescine. Clinically, this is a group I really struggle with, and I find they're often fairly resistant to existing weight promoting agents. The second paper is from uh, Chad Roff in Sleep 2016, looking at the investigational agent JZP110, which inhibits reuptake at dopamine and norepinephrine receptors. It was a small randomized control trial that ran for 12 weeks in people with narcolepsy, looking at sleepiness. But the reason I'm interested is one, it's a new compound, and we've all got lots of patients that are only partially satisfied by existing agents, but two was the effect size, really showed a big difference in uh, mean sleep latency in the maintenance of wakefulness test, uh, going from two minutes up to 12.8 minutes, and a big reduction in Epworth sleepiness score from 17.3 to 8.8 on treatment, with a persistent eight point change in the Epworth sleepiness score at 12 weeks. And the final group of papers for me that were of interest today were in sleep science. Burke et al.'s paper in Science and Translational Medicine in 2015 looking at the effect of caffeine on the circadian clock. The intriguing thing for me is we all know caffeine has an alerting effect and we talk to people about avoiding caffeine because of sleep hygiene measures but they showed that caffeine can have a further effect in delaying the body clock and that may be particularly important in adolescents that we're managing who are already struggling with phase delay And if you add caffeine, which is often caffeinated beverages for adolescents, it may actually exacerbate their phase delay. And then just to leave you with more questions rather than answers, the papers from Jerry Siegel's lab that looked at sleep in um, pre-industrial societies, uh, as well as Moreno's paper from 2015 that looked at sleep in rubber plant workers in the Amazon, really tries to get at that question of how much sleep do we need by looking at sleep in communities off the grid, away from electricity and away from the industrialised world. The interesting data from Jerry Siegel's group was that in pre-industrial societies, the average amount of sleep was only between 5.7 and 7.1 hours of sleep per night, a lot less than what we thought it might have been, and really challenges that dogma or doctrine that we hear often in the popular media, one, we need eight hours sleep per night, and two, we're sleeping less than we ever have in the past. So I see those more as challenges for us in the field. How much sleep do we really need? And we need to find good answers to those questions and also be able to get out those messages out into the public. So thanks. I hope you've enjoyed this update. And I'll be back with you again tomorrow for another update with highlights from Sleep 2016. For the A to Z of sleeping well, head to the hub. SleepHub.com.au.